You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome Angela Dowd. Angela is the Director of Practice Innovation at Burns & Levinson. She's joining us from Boston. And for some of you, I'm sure you would also either spoken to her, certainly seen her speaking at the ILTA conference or at the various ILTA social. So Angela, thank you and welcome. And it's great having you here. Hello, welcome and, and Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you too. And so I suppose let's start by learning a bit more about how did you find yourself to be part of this wonderful legal profession? How did you get to the role that you have now? You know, there are, there are some people who have very, you know, determined and, and fixed paths and how they got here. And mine was more of a, a sort of a rambling organic path, if you will. So when I was in college, I uh, initially thought that I would be a chemical engineer at Cornell. And I started and about halfway through my junior year, I discovered that I loved chemistry and I loved the problem solving of engineering. But in no way, shape or form did I want to be a chemical engineer for an actual profession, much to my, my parents' chagrin. Uh, <laughs> So I moved into communications, which I like because, well, I like to talk and chit chat with people and communicate in various forms. So that, that seemed like a good way of, of graduating relatively quickly. And I could use my, my science background in, in some other shape or form. So after college, I, I took a bit of a break. I was in Amherst for a while with somebody and we decided to move to Boston. So one night we just sort of packed up and moved to Boston and got a place. And then we needed jobs to fund rent. (laughs) And I (laughs) ended up at a law firm, uh, Burns & Levinson, in fact, in all places, human resources, because I did human resources when I was at, at Amherst. And I sort of found that I loved the legal vertical. It has its own, you know, special, unique qualities. I really like the people. They're all very bright people, really intelligent. I like the fact that everybody, you know, they tend to be very thoughtful about an assorted variety of things. And then from HR, I ended up kind of rolling into training, which rolled into user support, which rolled into applications, which rolled into practice innovation. So that's sort of how I ended up where I am. Wow. (laughs) What a journey. So chemical engineer turned comms, turned HR and training and so on. So what made you switch from HR side of things to go into more training and then even perhaps more weirdly or maybe not so going to become an apps manager was that was that because of your I suppose your engineering calling to some degree you know driving you to go into a more technical side of things or some other reason I think it was to some degree you know when I started here doing HR I was doing new hire training and we didn't have an official training function and I liked 
technology. So they sort of said, hey, can, can you also do, as you get their benefits information, can you also train them on how to use the system? So I thought, sure, I've already got these new employees. They're lovely, lovely folks. I'll just sort of do the whole kit caboodle. And I ended up really, you know, again, this sort of engineering background. I like that problem solving bit, mm-hmm. if you will, that comes with technology, you know, whether it's sort of that user support and then in applications as well, you know, how do you efficiently get things out there? And in in some ways, that problem solving is what carried me through to practice innovation because now instead of looking at what I call, you know, sort of symptomatic things, why is Outlook slow, things of that nature, (laughs) I'm looking at more business problem-y things where they're like, okay, how do we make this practice group, you know, have better realization or more efficient or any number of things just make their lives easier and not Mm -hmm. as painful. You know, so now instead of looking at the sort of symptomatic problems of, of you know, Outlook, Word, et cetera, deployments, I'm looking at sort of more business problems of, you know, how do we help the firm, you know, achieve its strategic goals? Right. And I mean, you spent a fair amount of time in the apps role. So was that... What was the, if I can take you back to, I think, what was it, 2014 when you moved into the direct, uh, the practice innovation role before that point, was it a challenging role for you to learn the technology stack, learning sort of all the back end, actually learning how to diagnose uh, a lot of those symptomatic problems, as you call them? Or was it something that came naturally to you? Did you sort of just walk into it because you had this, you know, bright class of people that join and you're like, oh, I can teach them how to use Outlook and, uh, and you know, your DMS and everything else. What was that like? I think that it just sort of came naturally to me. You know, I, it was, I have been very fortunate here in that the people here are very open to listening. And, and I say that in the sense that, you know, in, in the user support world, oftentimes people will say, you know, they'll come to you with a solution. And, and really, I think that what you're, what they really want me to ask is, but what are you trying to do at the end of the day? What problem are you trying to solve? Don't don't worry about the path you take to get there. I, I can find you a path, you know, and they have that level of trust that says, okay, you know what, I understand what you're trying to do and where you're trying to get to. Will Are you willing to listen to other ways of getting there? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be A, B, C, D. And, and I think that, you know, that worked in the applications world. The technology is the technology. I mean, I, I I think that you can find a lot of that information. You can learn that if you're willing to problem solve and and, and troubleshoot. You know, if you have that, if you you can troubleshoot, you can learn the technology stack. And is that the act of listening, having that trust? Do you think that's that's something obviously affects you and you would be a big part of, you know, someone building that trust in the individual, but is that also part of the firm culture? Do you see that across? Because, I mean, that sounds like a great environment, but I I suspect that's not an environment that follows all firms, uh, certainly across the country and the world. So I'm I'm trying to understand if that's something maybe because of the type of firm that you are, or is it something that's because of you, actually? I think that it's probably some combination. You know, Mm -hmm. our firm is very, I find it interesting because we are very much built up of laterals. You know, historically, we have had a lot of laterals come in. We don't have a big associate group here. You know, we're very partner heavy. And again, because we have laterals coming in, the great thing about that is that we have people who have done things a billion different ways. 
you know, they've come from all of these firms and every firm has their own way of doing it. Yeah. You know, the downside of it is that it's really hard to make a standard in, in our firm because everybody has come with their own way. But at the same time, because people have seen different things, they are in some ways more willing to listen to alternative paths of getting to their destination. Right. Because they probably see a lot of their colleagues doing things in a completely different way that they may not be used to yet, but at least as people Exactly. And, and it's not like they have, have, you know, 20 years of, well, the firm has, tw- have, has 20 years of doing it this way, where you're mm-hmm. fighting that, that inertia, if you will, which is very, very difficult. It has a lot of benefits. You can do a lot of standardization, which is, I'll be honest, is difficult sometimes when you have people coming from a little bit of everywhere. But at the same time, they're also, you know, the flip side is that I have the benefit of being able to say, okay, I know you did it this way and you had XYZ tools, but mm-hmm. if I can get you there you know, also relatively painlessly, is this what you want? And they say, yes. Hmm. Yeah. So they're basically just open to options and different paths to the same, to the same end goal. Right. And then going back to your, your journey through the firm. So when you became the, you know, when you joined the practice innovation as a director of practice innovation, was that a role that existed that you stepped into? Or do you think that when, was that something that was created because of the direction the firm wanted to go in the future? How, how did that come about? It was definitely something that was created because of where the firm wanted to go in the future. So when I was in the applications role, I was already doing a lot of this sort of business problem solving, if you will. But I, I can't remember who the gentleman at Littler was who, who said it, but you know, if you don't make it someone's job, it doesn't get done. So it was always something that I did on the side, you know, and, right. and it was great, but it ended up, you know, as we, we thought about it more, it ended up being that this was really sort of what the firm needed is somebody not to solve the, what I call symptomatic problems. Again, mm-hmm. the, the, okay, I need to make this person better or even this practice group, but looking at, a, at it holistically from a firm view that says, okay, we're trying as a one unit to try to get someplace. And these are the things we're prioritizing. And then how do we have somebody look across practice groups? So something that is applied to our you know, transactional group, it may have uh, things that I can reuse in my private clients group or in my litigation, you know, that there are bits and pieces. So rather than looking at each practice group as sort of its own silo to, to really now look at it as, an, as a firm, one firm. And I think I mentioned to you before, right, I was, re- I was reading your LinkedIn profile and one of the phrases that caught my attention was, I think your description that you you worked with cross-fertilization of innovative ideas. So is that kind of what that means where you're trying to apply something that might work in a, you know, in the corporate group into a litigation group and, and so on? Is that what that means? That, that, that is, 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 you know, that's sort of part of what I mean by that is that, that I want to be able to take those ideas and, and, and spread them around the practice groups. But part of it is also that, you know, I love learning from my peers. I, I absolutely adore it. And, and I see, you know, I love learning like a, a quirky little thing that somebody did for their IP, you know, group in a particular firm. I love this idea that I can sort of take that, tweak that to my culture, the the, the needs, the the disposition of mm-hmm. my users, and then maybe move that into you know my litigation group because it, it this idea that ideas are are practice specific or firm specific I think is 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 you know I, I'm 
I want to, I love stealing from the best and the brightest. <laughs> yep. I think there's, there's a quote, I, I don't know who it's attributed to, but I think it was, it's about writing, but it's good writers borrow from those that have come before them and great writers outright steal from them. And I think that's very much yeah. true when it comes to good ideas, right? There's no need to reinvent the wheel. If you have the foundations in place, why not take those and then see how, where else they can apply, right? You want to be able to stack those skills and things. And, and there are things that like, you know, there are, that, that every firm can, you know, what I call get away with, you know, the, the easiest description of it is, is in terms of security, you know, a firm may say, I have great security, but you know, there are things that will not meet the culture test that they just can't get by because it is too onerous, but then other firms have no problem doing that. So, you know, th- there's this idea that, you know, some firms are super innovative. You know, I think that people, everybody is innovative in some ways and, and completely not innovative in other ways. And, and to, to, you know, to sort of say, oh, I'm, I'm so far behind, I think is, is, is invalid. I think that, you know, you make the gains where you can make the gains. And what one person considers innovative may not be for another firm, but if it pushes your firm ahead, in my mind, that's still innovation. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that. I think there's a lot of generalization around what innovation means. And because yeah. there's no set definition for what it really means specifically, especially across different verticals and segments of, you know, even if you look at law firms, as you said, what, and you have to, I think you have to be able to tie it to the business problem and the business needs, because you could go and maybe, you know, implement the bleeding edge technology and that might work but if you don't have a need for it if it's not going to move the needle in order to serve a business purpose then does it matter and i think that's really maybe a better way of measuring innovation right what moves the needle for you guys as a business whether you're a law firm or something else Exactly. And and even within the firm, I find that, you know, there will be some practice groups that, you know, are, I don't want to call it resistant to change, because I think that that's a term that's overused. They don't have the desire for it yet. Right. You know, and that could be in any number, any for any number of reasons, you know, mm. that they don't have the desire for it yet. And I think that part of, you know, my job as well is to help build that desire, you know, to find the reasons that speak to them. You know, I can say, oh, you should just do it because it will make things better. But that's really, you know, (laughs) in some ways, I think that... the the importance of storytelling has become so important for, for many people in like similar positions of mine. And so how, how do you do that? I mean, I couldn't agree more with you that, you know, the importance of storytelling of asking good questions and then actually making it relevant to the individual or the group that you're speaking to serves a, a huge purpose. How do you, how do you overcome those challenges where, and I think you put it really well, there's no desire to change yet. How do you, how do you make them get to that portion where there is a need or want um, to change? How do you get them there? I think it comes back to, again, this idea of listening to them. You know, one of the things that I, I, I keep saying is that you need, you need to, to listen to the, 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 the attorneys. That they, they do things for a reason. Even if to you from the outside looking in or for me from the outside looking in, it seems like, well, that's sort of silly that they do that. At some point in time, something occurred that caused that to be necessary. So whether it was risk mitigation that they did and they've sort of held it over as, a, you know, almost a talisman. Of, of, of something that, you know, they, they made a choice for 
probably a very logical reason at some point in time. Right. And I find that listening to them, in some ways, embedding yourself in their practice. Mm. You know, people will say, oh, I just do A, B, and C. But do they really just do A, B, and C if you watch them? Yeah. You find that, oh, and then the, something else occurs. And, oh, I just never even thought to, to put this. I never thought to tell you that because, yeah, I just do that automatically. And and in some ways, you know, I find that embedding myself, you know, making myself their little shadow as I follow them around it is, is invaluable because you find out all the little things. And talking to people, just not just the attorneys, you know, the attorneys will tell you one thing and that's true for them. But right. then, you know, a partner versus associate versus a paralegal versus a legal assistant, they can all look at the exact same problem and each one of them has a piece that oftentimes the rest of them don't even know occurs. Yeah, and I think it's funny because this theme has come up actually so many times already in, in, in the last maybe 10 or so conversations I've had, all completely on, on different topics, but the importance of sitting and listening to people and almost thinking about it in the way that you have to forensically go back and trace why something that's being done at the moment is being done before you can think about changing it, right? Because you'll have a certain percentage of people who will accept whatever change comes their way. If you say, look, you're doing something in X way, why don't you try it in this way? There'll be a percentage of people that will say, sure, let's do it. And there might be some way you might need to tell them a reason and there might be others. And that's usually the more challenging percentage where you have to really look at why they're doing something they're doing right now. And I think just sitting there watching people, because when they, when I think when individuals explain something, they tend to oversimplify it, right? Because the, the, your day is made up of so many minuscule tasks that you don't think about or take for granted because they become almost sort of muscle memory. And those are the things that you really need to work hard to change in some ways. And yeah, sitting there listening and watching people makes a big difference. So. I absolutely agree. I mean, that, that muscle memory that they have, I think, and again, they, I, it keeps coming back to that. They don't do it for no reason whatsoever. Like no one makes extra work for themselves because they're like, oh, I just, I really, I had extra time in my day and I thought I would make extra work. Like there is a reason that they do it. They may not need to do it anymore. There may be other things that can do it faster or really, uh, you know, eliminate the risk, but they, they, they've done it for a reason. They're not unreasonable people. Yeah. And I think putting yourself in that individual or that group's shoes makes, you know, allows you to at least empathize with them and understand why they're doing something. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they're doing before you can then say, actually, because and I think one of the side effects of doing that is not just that you can change their minds and you can actually help them see there's a better, faster, you know, whatever way of doing it, but also that you might learn something that maybe they don't need to do anymore, but it might benefit somebody else if they did it that way. And it could be another practice group or it could be another role completely that might benefit from it. It definitely is. And it, but it also, you know, for me, it also builds, you know, it goes again to that level of trust where then people will come to me. I don't have yeah. to go to them and say, this is the task I've, I've been, you know, charged with fixing this problem. Mm. But rather they'll come to me and be like, I've got a problem. Can you help me solve it? And yeah. I think that that is that, you know, you know, that that pull push, if you will, when you, yeah. you, you get to that point where they want to 
make their lives more efficient, easier, better, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And in some ways you then need to almost throttle and be like, okay, this is great, but, 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 uh, you know what I mean? Like we need to be slightly systematic about this so that we are doing this in a, in, in an effective way. Mm. And so how, how do you manage that? And, you know, earlier you mentioned that the firm, the way it's made up is made up of a bunch of laterals and having the standards is, is difficult. Approaching a, an agreeable standard is difficult. How do you manage all of the probably the various streams of information and interest coming at you with people wanting to do things in the ways that they may have experienced at another firm or in the past or however they're used to doing things. How, how do you manage and prioritize and look through all of that? I think that it, it to some degree it depends on sort of the, the practice group, if you will. You know, sometimes people will come in and I think that this is very, very standard in, in a lot of the legal field and a lot of sort of just I don't know, life in general these days is where people think, you know, the technology is the solution, if you will. It's the magic bullet. If I had X, then, you know, the practice would go smoothly and I would reap in, you know, buckets of money and all would be good and right in the world. And, you know, obviously I'm oversimplifying it, but, but, you know, this this idea that there is this magic silver bullet that comes in technology. And, And again, to me, it comes back to the, but well, what are you trying to do at the end of the day? What, what problem are you trying to solve? And, and if you, ask that sort of question about what they're trying to do. And sometimes it involves letting them explain why they need this technology. But again, it's, it's that sort of whittling it down to, but what is the problem we're trying to solve? And is that a problem? Then you start looking at it. Is that a problem just for you? Can we solve it a different way? Is it a problem for your practice group? Is it a problem that also applies to what our strategic goals are? Does it advance our strategic goals? And sort of, you know, as you sort of whittle that away, you, you, I think it just sort of naturally like sifts different things out. It raises different items. It, it demotes certain things. And and sometimes it's about saying, hey, you know what? This is great. I think that this could make a big move, but it's just not feasible now for any number of reasons, reasons, whether it's resources, whether it's, you know, and resources can be people, resources can be money, resources can be, you know, just what we have, you know, in our technology stack in the back end. So it can be any number of those things. And it's that negotiation that, okay, well, I can get you part of the way or I can get you here and this, you know, will sort of, and I understand that this is a stopgap, but I have it that we're going to revisit this at X point in time you know, any number of things. Again, people are generally very reasonable. They understand that there are other things that, you know, things rise and fall with. And as you were saying that, it reminded me of what a CIA once told me, which is they get a lot of requests from their partners in wanting to do X. And usually it is driven by the the same sentiment that you mentioned that technology is going to be the silver bullet bullet for whatever problem they're having at that point. And sometimes it might be uh, for sure. And other times, you know, the answer is going to be, this is perfect, just not right now. So I suppose, do you tend to keep a list of these requests or interests or, or whatever it might be a wish list, so to speak, that you might visit in the future as you're looking at actually this may work, but we're not there because of whatever resource constraint or what we're looking to do strategically as a, as a business, as a firm right now. How do you, do, you, do you keep that to hand somewhere so it might come in useful in the future? So I keep, and, and because, you know, I, I'm sort of a practice innovation of one, it's, it's, <laughs> I have less of, a, of an official methodology than, than I think some do. Sure. But, you know, like I keep almost, you know, an electronic notebook, but I keep it instead of thinking of 
items. I think of it as pro- of, of, of what are the things we're trying to solve. You know, so I'm I'm keeping track of, okay, these are pain points, if you will. And I sort of have a, a rough jot down of like, oh, this guy really liked X product, if you will, or Y product. You know, she requested blah. But really, I'm thinking of it more in terms of what are you trying to achieve at the end? Right. And I do that partially because, you know, yes, I'm interested in the technology. It's really cool. And there's some really awesome stuff out there. But the pace of change is such that, you know, if I revisit it, in a year, mm. what has bubbled up as being good for us may have radically changed. Right. Yeah. So how do you keep up to date with all the things that are going on? And yeah, things are radically changing. Things are, I suppose, things are evolving very quickly as well. So what do you tend to do to counter that? I think that for me, it has to do with, you know, sort of where I'm keeping track of different things, if you will. Like, you know, everybody sort of aggregates their information from different streams, if you will. You know, if it's legal specific, I'm going to go back to, you know, ILTA is a great place of meeting really, really brilliant peers. And they're Mm -hmm. doing really cool, like bleeding edge things (laughs) with the very interesting vendors. I also find that I have a lot of friends in sort of the, the startup space. And I find that it's really interesting, their views on sort of process, if you will. So this idea of, you know, like software development, how like the flow, the the culture of and speed of the startup, I find that really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so just, you know, even just, you know, tangentially, you know, talking to people in that sphere, I find is really energizing and helps me to, I am of an age, I'm not that old, but I am old (laughs) enough where I, I like this idea of what I call reverse mentoring, you know, okay. where I want I want someone who is really just I want someone to challenge me with ideas where I'm like, wow, that's crazy. That'll ne-, you know, I want to think that'll never work and then have to think twice about it so that I'm like, oh, ooh, maybe I'm making an assumption about why it wouldn't work. What can I steal from it? Hmm. And how, how do you catch yourself out? Because I think that's a, that's a really useful skill to do, but it's also a very difficult thing to do, right? When you can catch yourself to knowing that you're making an assumption. And I, I, I try and do that. I'm not very good at it all the time. But there are some things when people say, I was like, no, that's not going to work. And I would say 50% of the time I'm able to catch myself and say, oh, I shouldn't say no so quickly. Let me at least think about it for you know, at least a minute before I say no. How do you do that? How do you develop that skill? I think a lot of it is practice, you know, and again, it's, it's the catching of yourself. Like, you know, if I, if I pull an automatic no, that's yeah. almost always a reason to, dub, to do a double take. You know, yeah. I, I give the example that, you know, I have a nine-year-old son and <laughs> last summer it was raining one day and he was like, oh, we should go to the beach. And I was like, dude, it's, it's, it's raining. Why would, why would we go to the beach? And he just looked at me like I was, uh, you know, in the way that only a child could look at you like right. you're an idiot and said, well, we're going to go bodyboarding. So we're going to get wet anyway. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it's totally true. We're going into the ocean. So right. why should I care if it's raining? Cause I'm going to get wet. Right. So I was like, all right, we'll pack the boards. We'll get in the car and we'll go. Like, <laughs> but, but it's this idea, you know, when you pull an automatic no mm-hmm. for me, that's a, the, my first flag that maybe I should think about why I'm pulling an automatic no. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to try and do. And then so if I can go back to aggregating your sources of knowledge and information. So tell me a bit more about your role with ILTA. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I think a lot of people will probably recognize 
your name, face, your voice, I'm sure, from ILTA. So how did you get involved there? Well, in very similar ways to, I, to how I got started, it, you know, as you can tell, there's a theme here. So way back when I was at the firm and the Boston area, we have a great little community, but there weren't, there wasn't a social event going on and I thought that there should be one. So I, I talked to some, some ILTA folks, you know, the volunteers who were there at the time. And I was like, would you mind if I put one on? Because I just think that we should and, you know, I'll do the work. I'm, I'm cool with that. And so that's how I sort of like I was I was a, a ninja volunteer for a while, not an <laughs> official one. And then I there was an opening and I put my name in and I started out as what then was called a city rep. So, you you know, or now is an ML and you represent the city or, or a region. And then there was an opening for an RVP. And I thought, ah, you know, I, I like doing this. I'll, I'll do it some more. I drank the Kool-Aid, as we like to say. You know, I'd gone to conference. It was fantastic. <laughs> I love just it was so stimulating meeting all those people and hearing the things that they do and it was it was fantastic and it made me want to give back so I you know did that for a couple of years and then I threw my hat in for the the board and that sort of you know and I sort of rolled into that wow and you're being part of the board for now almost four years is that right Yep, this will be, uh, 2019 will be my fourth year on the board and my second year as board president and I will be terming off of president this year. Oh, so a bit of a bittersweet. Uh, is that because there's a limit to how long you can serve? There is. There's a two-year limit, which is I actually think is, is fantastic because, you know, I love, you know, as you can tell, this idea of reverse mentoring. I love the idea of, of fresh blood. I love this idea that you constantly have new ideas, new ways of doing things. And that doesn't mean that we should not, you know, hold to our foundation and that, you know, is what, you know, the, the core. But at the same time, the legal profession is changing at such a rate, you know, not just technology, but the business of law is changing at such a rate that I think that to serve our members, ILTA needs to keep pace with the change to help them, you know, rise to lead where our firms are going to go, not just to to, to survive, but really to lead it. Mm. And I think beyond ILTA, because I think that's that's obviously an amazing network of people. And I've certainly met a lot of amazing individuals through ILTA. How, and you mentioned the startups as well, right? So that's one way of you keeping an eye on what's coming. So what do you think as as a team of one, (laughs) as someone who looks at innovation, what do you think is next for specifically for legal? Because there's a lot of buzz about all sorts of different technologies and, and ways of doing things. What's on the horizon, do you think, that will be readily accepted? I think that we hopefully, I, I hope, we will stop talking about AI and we'll start talking about it in the way that we talk about the cloud, where it's just right. everybody's in the cloud. Whether you, you, you care about it or not, you're in the cloud. Right. It's a AI, whether that's machine learning, whether, you know, in what form it takes, we'll, we will stop talking about it and we will just use it as that yeah. it will be, you know, as, as, as ubiquitous as our phones, if you will, and no one will, we will stop having that conversation about it. Also, we will all be able to get to the point where we can explain blockchain to our grandmothers. <laughs> because right now, again, like AI, it is that word that is out there that, yeah. you know, people sort of quasi understand, but mm-hmm. they do because they've heard it on the news. I think that there are just a number of things out there. Again, I think that that really it's 
that this idea that firms are going to start looking at solutions for them mm. as opposed to, you know, just best of breed, if you will. So this idea that, that, I, that each firm is unique and that their solution set should be unique and that it's ever changing. So the solution for today may not be the solution for tomorrow. You know, this idea of, you know, set it and forget it, if you will. Mm. It, it's this idea that not only is the software itself evergreen, but the process of improvement is evergreen. Mm. I mean, and I think what's starting to happen, and I think the smaller firms, and by small, I mean really small firms of sort of 10, 15 individuals, those are looking to adopt this initially because it's becoming more, having a law firm is becoming almost like running a platform, which means that you have the, and this is just my crazy theory, but it gives you the agility to be able to change and evolve as technology around you evolves and as the clients that you serve change, because that's part of the reason why some firms, certainly the bigger firms are the way they are and somewhat resistant to change yet is because they feel that, look, my clients are so far behind, will change when they change. And I think some, the vendors and so on are in the same boat as well, right? They're, they're ready to produce different solutions, but they need there to be a demand for it. And I think the smaller firms are taking this approach because they want to be really versatile to be able to serve a broad market that's constantly evolving. And I really liked your point about sort of, you know, listening to startups, not just for the products they're focusing on, but the processes, because that's really ultimately what's changing because the startups need to be able to experiment. They need to be able to change and, uh, and be, uh, well, be, be agile enough so not to fail. I think that that will hopefully infect law firms to some degree. It's not an easy thing oh, to I do definitely. because it requires a mindset change for one. It does, but I think that, that you know, that slowly, you know, in, in some ways it's like the difference between startups and large corporations in my mind. It's like, you know, in startups, you you, you know, you have a product owner, for example, yeah. you know, and, and the product owner really is about, you know, shaping the product to meet the client's needs, mm-hmm. expectations, etc., well, you know, in some ways, why wouldn't you have one within a law firm from a from a business standpoint? Is that, you know, why would you not bespoke what you are offering mm. to what that client needs? And not just, you know, one giant client. And and I understand it's it is it is more difficult, especially as you are bigger. You know, there is an agility to being small that is very, mm. very helpful. But this idea that, you know, you are ultimately, you know, not even attorney centric, but you're client centric mm-hmm. and and why wouldn't you do that and adopt your change in that very similar way? Why do you have to make big, giant changes? You know, that, those iterative, small, you know, you, you hate to say it, you know, you, the agile methodology, but you know, that, that idea of, of those little incremental changes allows you to do it without being overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think I know of a handful of firms in, in Europe that have started to adopt this and in actually so much as they have product owners now, and they've yeah. really taken a very invested approach in not just trying to serve their clients, but going beyond that to say, okay, look, what are you client, what's their client trying to do for their client, right? So you're trying to follow this hierarchy. And I think when you can start doing that and follow this chain, that's where you start seeing really important things happening because ultimately, you know, as a law firm, yeah, you have a client base, but they're coming to you because they have a specific need. And if you can help them meet their needs, then they will stick with you longer versus going with someone else. Exactly. But in some ways, you know, I I see the mirror to that as sort of Mm -hmm. what I try to do with my firm and my stakeholders is that if I can solve one of their problems, if I can make them want to come back to me, 
mean really that it, it's the repetitiveness that the you know you always want new business but that's always more expensive than business coming back to you yes very much so and i think if i can go back and, and summing up so one of the things that you mentioned throughout is you know you've moved from being a symptomatic problem solver to a business problem solver so how, how do you suggest people start changing their mindset to thinking in that way because I think that's where you can start being more strategic. And, you know, part of it does mean that you have that trust and you're established in a firm. If it's your first day, maybe not, maybe doesn't work that well as easily. But how, how do you start thinking about sort of the bigger business problems, the strategic approaches? I think that, again, it comes down to listening and asking questions of people. People want to tell you. So when they say, I need X, you know, why, why do they need X? And not why do they need X in the way like, well, why do you need that? I'm not going to give it to you. But like, hey, what are you trying to do with that? You know, and, and, and asking them what they're trying to do. And then, again, you, you keep very slowly backing up and saying, okay, well, when you do that, what what is how how does that fit into your process? How does that make everything else better? How does that... You know, how does that change X or Y or Z? And, and continuing to ask those questions in a way that doesn't say no, but is really teasing out what is the, the root of it. You know, again, you go to the doctor, you say, I have this cough that's going on. What, did, what does the doctor say? Well, you know, how long has it been going on? You know, what have you, have you been treating? It? Okay, what, what, are, what things have been going on? Have you changed your environment? Have you been around, you know, do you have a fever? You, they, they start looking at, you know, not that individual one thing, but, but, but the, the, the ancillary things to try and find the root cause. Mm. Yeah. Very good. Uh, well, thank you, Angela. Really appreciate this. This is a fun conversation for me. So I'll include your LinkedIn information uh, as part of the show notes here. But beyond that, is there anywhere else people can reach out to you if they wanted to? I don't know if you are on Twitter or anything like that or anything else. You want. I, I am on Twitter, though. I honestly haven't been there for very... <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been active recently. I think LinkedIn, the ILTA website has all my contact information and people can feel free to reach out to me. And thank you very much for having me. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.